0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Omari Everett Phillips, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Leslie Alexander about her new book, Fear of a Black Republic, Haiti and the Birth of Black Internationalism in the United States. Dr. Leslie Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I was actually born in Chicago, um, but moved from Illinois when I was pretty young. Um, I was raised mostly on the West Coast, Um, spent some time in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where I went to college um, for undergrad. And I have to say, when I started college, I had like If someone had told me that I was going to become a historian, (laughs) I would have told them they were insane because I had had no interest in history, Um, you know, on the high school level. And I didn't even know that people were professional historians or like how people became historians. So um, that was not my vision. You know, I'm really inspired by young people today who come into my office, you know, as freshmen and like. I want to be a historian because that was that was not me. Um, but I actually took an introduction to African-American studies class uh, at the beginning of my sophomore year, and it was taught by someone who may be familiar to some of your listeners, Sylvia Winter. And she gave a lecture about the history of the transatlantic trade in humans. And I was just absolutely riveted, just completely blew my mind. And, um, again, at that point, like I, I knew that professors were called doctor, (laughs) you know, I didn't know how they got PhDs or that they needed PhDs or how people became professors or historians. But I just kind of knew at that point that I wanted to learn more and that I wanted to be part of a process of teaching other people what I had learned. And I was really fortunate along the way that, you know, people apparently saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and, you know, introduced me to different historical research projects. And, you know, just along the way, I learned, um, you know, that becoming a historian and that becoming a professor was something that was possible.
1: Wonderful. And so for this particular project, how, how did you come to this project?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was kind of brought to this project by two different things. One is that I was really excited and inspired by my friends who work on the 20th century, who were writing about Black internationalism in the 20th 20th century context. And I kept feeling like I know there's more to this story um, in the 19th century. Like, You guys are telling a fascinating story, but I want to push the timeline back farther um, and have us think a little bit about how internationalist consciousness kind of first came into being. Um, So that was part of it. Part of it also was that in my first book, which was about kind of Black political consciousness in the 19th century in New York City, I was really fascinated by thousands of people um, we now think probably somewhere in the range of 13,000 people who, free black folks, who migrated from the north to Haiti in just like maybe a five to seven year window in the 1820s, like between, you know, 1823 and maybe 1829. And so I just became really fascinated with why are they going to Haiti? What does Haiti represent to them, you know, at that point? I had learned a lot about migration to Canada and to Mexico and Jamaica and, you know, all these other places, but I hadn't seen a lot written about the immigration movement to Haiti. And so I just really became fascinated with what Haiti symbolically represented um, to Black activists in the 19th century and always knew I wanted to do something more on that topic. And so when I became interested in kind of wanting to expand the timeline for Black internationalism, I had intended that Haiti was going to be one of the countries that I looked at, but I imagined that I was actually also going to look at other countries, how Black activists in the U.S. viewed liberation struggles, like I was thinking maybe Cuba, Brazil, Jamaica, you know, I all of these countries were being talked about in the black newspapers. And so I had an idea of kind of comparing what they were saying about all these different countries. I first of all soon realized (laughs) that that was not going to fit into one book that like the volume of material of what black activists of the 19th century were saying about all these different countries you know, is, that's a multi-volume um, <laughs> project that, you know, I'm still hoping someone will take up at some point. Um, so I knew I needed to kind of scale it down. But I also just became more and more convinced, the more research and reading and digging that I was doing, just became more and more convinced that Haiti and the establishment of independent Haiti was at the heart of the story. And so I ended up going going all in on Haiti, and and I'm really glad that I did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a wonderful book, and uh, I wonder if you could just sort of start by giving us a brief history of the Haitian Revolution for those who might not know the history.
2: Yeah, that's like such an important question, and it's such a complicated one because obviously the Haitian revolution went on for such a long time and was really complicated, right? Um, over a period of years, but to try to make you know it as Clear and concise as possible. Um, what becomes the Haitian Revolution starts as a, a slave revolt, basically, right? An uprising of enslaved Africans that takes place in August of 1791 in the northern part of Haiti. And it begins kind of on the heels of a spiritual ceremony um, that gives rise to a revolt against the institution of slavery. That revolt um, blossoms and, you know, rages out of control um, very quickly. It begins like a lot of other uprisings and revolts that had happened in Saint-Domingue and all across the Americas, but it really sort of takes a life, takes on a life of its own. Um, So it begins in like the middle of August and by the end of September, over a thousand plantations had been burned to the ground. You know, hundreds of, of French white French colonists lay dead. I mean, it was, it was, um, it 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 took on, like I said, a life of its own, um, <laughs> very quickly, and so it blossoms from kind of a small scale uprising to a, a large scale revolt to a full out rebellion, and then eventually becomes what we know and think of as the Haitian Revolution. I think part of what makes the history of the Haitian Revolution complicated is that it goes on for such a long period of time that there's lots of shifting of alliances, right? And lots of other nations um, and groups of people that get involved. Um, But to try to make it as simple as possible, the free people of color. Um, in Haiti eventually decide that they're going to cast their lot um, with the enslaved population as well. So an important alliance develops um, between the free people of color and the enslaved Africans. And then You know, over the course of um, like the next decade or so, you see a situation where the French try various strategies to try to put down the rebellion. So, for example, um, you know, they try to bring various, you know, of the rebel leaders over to their side and form alliances with them. Um, They try outlawing slavery thinking that like if they make slavery illegal but still keep control over the colony and kind of force people to labor that they can still maintain financial control um, over the space at various points both England and Spain see that France is in a vulnerable position so they try to come in um, and impose colonial authority and slavery themselves so it's a very complicated multi-layered, Um, Process that plays out over the course of a decade or so. Um, But by November of 1803, the rebels finally declare victory um, over the French military and um, declare their independence. So it's on on January 1st of 1804 that um, they declare Haiti as a free, sovereign, and independent Black nation. And of course, it becomes the first uh, Black nation
1: in the Western Hemisphere. And so you say that the Haitian Revolution was sort of the genesis of Black internationalism. Um, So just to sort of unpack that a little bit, right? Like what is black internationalism? Um, and what role did Haiti actually play in that development?
2: Right. I mean, I think this is really interesting because black internationalism has become a really important subfield, right? In African American history. And it's a term that gets tossed around a lot. And yet it's clear that people still think about it and identify it, um, in various ways. And, um, even just a few years ago, I, I heard um, Eula Taylor, you know, the the brilliant historian at Berkeley, um, speak about Black internationalism. And she was like, it's gotten to the point where, you know, we're all using it and we're all using it in different ways. So what does it actually mean? So I, I do try in the introduction to at least, you know, explain and clarify what I think of um, as Black internationalism, particularly Black internationalism in the 19th century, because I think it evolves and morphs and becomes more, right, and more complicated and more nuanced. And, you know, like everything, it evolves over time. So in the 20th century, I think it's, it's something a little different. But I think in the case of the 19th century, How I'm thinking about Black internationalism is that it's sort of like practical or applied Pan-Africanism around foreign policy. So, you know, I think we know that In the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, there is kind of an early Pan-Africanist consciousness that is moving and flowing and circulating across the Atlantic world, and that people of African descent across the Americas see themselves as part of a unified collective of people right? They came across the ocean in shackles on ships together, and they've seen each other bought and sold, you know, across the ocean. They know that their shipmates and their family members and friends and loved ones have been sold and dispersed um, across the Americas. So there is that kind of collective sense of early Pan-Africanist consciousness But part of what I'm trying to put my finger on in this book is not just about the existence of that consciousness on kind of an ethereal level, which I think is actually really important. Like that's important that that exists. But I'm also trying to take it to the next step and to say – So then what does that look like in practice, right? Like how does that then actually play out in terms of political activism? And in this case, I'm thinking about it particularly around political activism relative to foreign policy. So if we take, for example, this early Pan-Africanist consciousness and say Black folks in the United States felt a sense of solidarity and community and racial unity with the Haitian people, right, and felt a a sense of connection and solidarity to Haiti's success, then how does that political ethic influence their activism around U.S. foreign policy to Haiti? So in my mind, you know, um, Black internationalism, at least in the 19th century, is kind of Pan-Africanist consciousness weaponized, right, (laughs) by activists through foreign policy,
1: And so just to get into the book some, so uh, we'll start in chapter two, right? So you look at how France and the U.S. tried to destroy Haitian sovereignty. Um, So obviously I've read the book for for those that haven't. What efforts did France and the U.S. undergo to actually try to achieve that? And also just what effect did this have on Black American support for Haiti and also sort of this developing sort of Black internationalism?
2: Yeah, and thank you, by the way, for reading the book and and engaging me on it. My pleasure. Um, You know, I think that, One of the things that happens is that Haiti comes to to represent symbolically obviously very different things to white folks in the United States by comparison to what it represents to black folks in the United States. And so in that period, immediately following 1804, you know, the founding fathers are in an uproar, you know, um, a white businessmen in the United States are in an uproar. You know, there is widespread panic about what the establishment of this Sovereign black nation is going to mean for the United States politically and economically, what it's going to mean for um what they see as you know the security and the stability of the institution of slavery, right? Um, but black folks are excited. You know what I mean? Like for them, Haiti is this model, it's this symbolic representation of what they think and imagine and hope that the global Black liberation struggle can ultimately achieve, right? Because it's not just that enslaved people have rebelled, right? Or that they've had a long, you know, sustained uprising. It's that they have defeated one of Europe's great military powers. They have thrown off the shackles of slavery. They've, you know, challenged the fundamental under, underpinnings of white supremacy that buttress the institution of slavery. And they have declared themselves free and sovereign. Um, and they are unapologetic about it, right? Like they ha- they make it clear that they not only are free and sovereign, But that they intend to defend that freedom and sovereignty, you know, in 20th century terms by any means necessary, right? Like they're willing to do whatever is required um, to defend that. So that resonates, right, and sends ripple effects across the Atlantic world in very different ways for black folks, right? Um versus what it represents to white folks. So what that means is that, you know, for the first 20 years or so after Haiti gains its you know, declares its independence, the white western world is kind of trying to figure out, right? what to do with with Haiti and How to respond to it. You know, there, no one is extending diplomatic recognition. No one's acknowledging that Haiti actually exists. But on a practical level, Haiti is fundamentally important to the trade economies of all of these countries, France most obviously, but the United States as well. Like during the entire 19th century, Haiti ranges anywhere between being like, the third and fifth most important trade partner that the United States has. So they're not recognizing Haiti diplomatically, but economically, they're deeply tied, right, to Haiti. So the United States is struggling around what to do. And for a very short period of time, starting in 1806, they say, okay, we're going to impose an economic embargo on Haiti because, you know, it's this deviant country founded by, you know, these, you know, the, the, the terminology that they use is like, you know, their hands are still dripping in the blood of their murdered masters. And, you know, how can we recognize and engage in this country? Well, I mean, the embargo lasts all of what, like, not even quite four years or barely four years. I mean, The United States is not able to sustain that because they actually need that trade relationship with Haiti. But they're also stuck not wanting to acknowledge this sovereign Black nation governed by former slaves, right? And so it does create kind of a moment of crisis. Like by the 1820s, it's clear Haiti's not going anywhere. You know, the white Western world was kind of waiting for it to like, you know, collapse you know, under the weight of its own failure, it doesn't happen, right? Like Haiti is still there. And by 1820, a lot of the political divisions had faded. They've united the country by the early part of the 1820s. Now the entire island of Hispaniola is under the control of the Haitian government. You know, Haiti looks like it's winning, right? And so the white Western world is having to decide what to do about that. Um, so by 1825, France has also tried a number of different things, right? A number of different strategies, trying to cajole Haiti back under its control. Well, what if we try this? What if we try that? And the Haitian leaders consistently across the border are like, we're not doing any of that, right? We're we're maintaining our status as a free, non-slave nation, and we're going to be governed by ourselves, <laughs> right? Um, So what happens then in 1825 is that France decides that it needs to resolve what it anyway sees as an unresolved relationship (laughs) with Haiti, right? The Haitians clearly don't see it that way, right? They're fine. But from France's perspective, they feel like their relationship with Haiti is still unresolved. And so King Charles X decides that he's going to impose in agreement um, on Haiti. And the way that he does it is he sends first a, a couple of ships, right, with diplomats on board the ship. But then immediately following those first two ships, they he sends a squadron of 12 additional ships. And they point a little less than 500 cannons, right, at Port-au-Prince, the, the main trade port, right, um, of the Haitian nation and essentially say to the then president, Jean-Pierre Boyer, you have two choices. You can either concede to the terms of this agreement or we can fight it out again, right? We can go to war again. Those are your two choices. That agreement, of course, becomes known as the indemnity. And the terms of the indemnity essentially say France will finally agree to acknowledge what we already knew was true, which is that Haiti is independent, right? And it's a sovereign nation. So France is, you know, very generously agreeing to acknowledge um, Haitian sovereignty in exchange for which Haiti has to pay what France is essentially thinking of as reparations, right? They have to provide some kind of financial repair for the loss of France's loss of the colony, but also the loss of the value of the human property, right? So they place a dollar value on the land that the colony, the former colony occupied and the value of the human life of every person who gained their freedom as the result of the Haitian Revolution. The French government determines that amount is going to be 150 million gold francs. And of course, historical conversions are always a little you know, complicated and iffy, but people agree that's probably somewhere in the range of what we would now think to be about $20 billion and say, you have to pay this back to us in annual installments. And if you do that, we will then acknowledge that you are in fact free, right? Interestingly enough, there's another rider to that um, indemnity, which I talk a little bit about in chapter two, um, but isn't actually discussed as often, but I think is important in terms of how this plays out financially, which is that France also requires that Haiti grant France kind of most favored nation status. And what that means is that normally when ships would come into a port to trade, they would have to pay taxes, tariffs, right, certain kinds of duties um, in order to be able to engage in trade the most favored nation status meant that France only had to pay half duties um, or taxes when they came in to trade. So it's a bit of a double whammy because now they're imposing this massive debt, but then also saying, we're going to also give you less money, (laughs) right? So it becomes essentially an impossible financial arrangement to effectively respond to. And it, of course, sends Haiti into, you know, more than a century, right? And generations upon generations of cycles of debt where France is now forced, I mean, Haiti is now forced to borrow from French banks in order to meet the terms of the indemnity. And it is a cycle of debt from which Haiti has never been able to fully recover, What's interesting, of course, is that this also has a fascinating effect on the United States side, right? So obviously, the big lesson here is about what the indemnity means for Haiti and the long-term economic impact. But it also does have little ripple effects in the United States as well, because once Boyer decides we're not going to go to war again, right? So we're going to have to agree to the terms of the indemnity, the United States government is now in kind of a complicated quandary because it now has to decide, well, Haiti is France's former colony and France is recognizing them politically and acknowledging (laughs) Haiti's sovereignty. So now what are we going to do, right? It kind of makes it awkward for the United States to continue. But as it turns out, the United States government is not uncomfortable with awkward And it decides not only that it's going to persist with non-recognition, but it's actually going to double down on it, right? Um, That the clear message from United States politicians and, of course, from enslavers in the United States is that they will never, under any circumstances, acknowledge Haiti as a free sovereign nation, in part because they're afraid that it will then create you know, a sort of a symbol of resistance for enslaved people in the United States and elsewhere in the Americas, but also because their position is, this is, again, a nation founded by, you know, people who murdered their masters. And therefore, you know, from a moral standpoint, um, we cannot allow ourselves, right, um, to acknowledge the existence um, of this nation, Black folks don't feel that way (laughs) in the United States, right? Um, And so, of course, part of the end of chapter one and parts of chapter two talk about how Black folks, right, celebrated and partied and feted and had dinners and parades and festivals and, right, all the enthusiasm that comes from Black folks in the United States celebrating the fact that a white Western nation has finally acknowledged, right, 20 years have gone by now. And France is finally acknowledging that Haiti is independent and sovereign. Um, And so it bolsters an immigration movement, right? Black folks start migrating um, from the United States, wanting to help nation build, right, and participate in the construction of this amazing Black nation, but of course, that really does start to kind of unravel over the course of the 1820s as the details of the terms of the indemnity become public um, and as the severe economic impact of the indemnity really start to be felt um, in Haiti. And it creates a complicated moment for Black activists in the United States trying to figure out how they're going to kind of grapple with and respond to this new, very tenuous and unstable position that Haiti finds itself in.
1: Yeah. And you pick that up in chapters both three and four, right? So chapter three looks at the struggle that Black American leaders undertook to create sort of this new relationship with Haiti. Um, and chapter four really sort of sees that coalition then start to take their fight to Washington, DC. Um, so Questions here, like how did the, the coalition of Black Americans for Haiti sovereignty form? Um, what actions did they take and how effective were they in actually changing the US's stance towards Haiti at this point in time?
2: Yeah, so it's really interesting because, you know, over the course of the 1820s, again, you know, Black activists and leaders, just regular Black folks on the ground, are super excited about, you know, Haiti and there's tons of enthusiasm. And You see it, like I said, expressed in parades and in festivals. You also see it expressed and articulated in Freedom's Journal, which was the first and in the 1820s, the only um, Black newspaper in the United States. And so you have, you know, the editors of the newspaper, people like um, John Russworm and Samuel Cornish, and of course, all of their correspondents that are writing in and celebrating Haiti and talking about Haiti. But what's fascinating is to kind of see how that starts to shift and change a little bit by the end of the 1820s, like as the full heaviness of the weight of the indemnity and the economic nightmare that it unleashes starts to become clear, you see Black activists kind of stepping a little bit away from their public celebrations of Haiti. I will say that one of the... One of the big points that I try to make in the the latter part of chapter two, which I think is important, is that black activists in the U.S. never go down the road of disparaging Haiti, you know, even when Boyer agrees to the terms of the indemnity, which they clearly don't agree with. They don't talk trash about Boyer, you know, they don't condemn him. They don't vilify him in Freedom's Journal or anywhere else. Um, They never speak negatively about Haiti or Haiti's potential. You know, their attitude is kind of ride or die. You know, like we're going to, you know, as one of the activists says, like we are going to sink or swim with our race, you know, and their feeling is they are going to defend Haiti until the very last um, moment. So it's significant that like they pull away from the immigration movement. They feel disappointment about the indemnity and sort of the decline of the immigration movement. They're disappointed in Boyer and some of the economic decisions that he makes, but they never rescind their public endorsement and support um, for Haiti. But what it does create, as you said, is a bit of a crisis. Like now there's not a lot positive to say about Haiti. So what are we going to say, right? And it's interesting because there is a little bit of that, like, there is a a short period of time where there's that kind of old school, like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? So there is a a period of time in the early 1830s where folks don't have a lot to say, you know, Um, Mariah Stewart, interestingly enough, is one of the few um, outspoken Black abolitionists who... Defends Haiti, right, all through the course of um, the early 1830s until, you know, she is driven off the public speaking circuit. But, you know, she stays very loyal to Haiti and is very outspoken um, about Haiti during that period. But a lot of other activists are kind of, you know, locking up their mouths and and throwing away the key. Um, In the book, I really credit Samuel Cornish who was a black abolitionist who was um, one of the initial editors of um, Freedom's Journal. He goes on to found a newspaper called the Weekly Advocate, um, which then later becomes the Colored American. And until Frederick Douglass and um, Martin Delaney create the North Star, the Colored American is kind of the main black newspaper um, of that time. And Samuel Cornish is, you know, one of the the early founders and, and early editors of that paper. And I really credit... Samuel Cornish um who I kind of feel a little bit guilty about cuz I when I worked on him relative in my first book I felt a little judgy like you know in my own mind anyway um about his politics but I gained a whole new like appreciation um for Samuel Cornish in in working on this book because um, he was really he went to the mat um for Haiti and for Haitian sovereignty and he really dedicates Um, large portions of the colored American and many, many, many fiery, Salty editorials um, to, and those are some of my you know favorite quotes. Some of those were some of my sort of favorite quotes to um, include in that chapter. But you know he's very very publicly critical of the United States government for refusing to recognize Haiti, and he is unrelenting in his demand that the United States Congress change its position. And in trying to encourage other activists to advocate um, for Haiti's right to be recognized. Um, so in the latter part of the 1830s, he really kind of takes that on as um, his personal mission. And it leads, as you say, to the story that I end up telling in chapter four, where this really kind of fascinating biracial coalition, you know, of um the kind of tried and true Black abolitionists, you know, come together with, you know, the the white members of the American Anti-Slavery Society, you know, William Lloyd Garrison and his crew, um, you know, to create a very powerful petitioning campaign um, in which they really bombard Congress with, I mean, hundreds of petitions containing thousands of signatures demanding that the U.S. Congress recognize Haiti. And chapter four is really about that, the story, right, of that petitioning campaign and the rather unpleasant fate, right, that it meets um, in the United States Congress. But I think it's a really important story because it shows the really complicated political machinations, right, that what at the time was referred to as the slave power, right? The slave holding politicians had to go through to make sure that there would be no discussion of Haiti and no consideration of Haitian recognition on the congressional floor. So it really showed actually how much they felt like was at stake and what they went through. You know, to make sure that that Haiti would not be um, recognized. It's also a story I think that shows the role of women in the petitioning campaign. I mean, when you actually look at the petitions and you know assign genders to the signatures on the petitions, it's really telling the number of women who became involved in the petitioning campaign. And especially at a moment when they were not considered citizens, right? Women of not of any race, right, were considered um, citizens. And yet you see both Black and white women circulating, signing, and literally stitching these petitions together. I mean, when I went to the National Archives, the petitions are actually these like really long strips that are almost like a you know, like an old school slinky or whatever, you know what I mean? Like you pull them out and they like all these little scraps of paper unfold and the scraps of paper are like literally hand stitched together with thread. So it's like people are taking these scraps of paper, circulating them around, getting the signatures. And then these women are, I'm imagining, you know, sitting by candlelight at night You know, after they put the kids together and you know to bed and made everybody's meals and cleaned everything up, you know, now they're there stitching these petitions together by hand, and then mailing them off to the U.S. Congress. So it's really quite an extraordinary. Story. I mean, obviously, the petitioning campaign fails miserably. Right. And the slave power does manage to to block consideration of the issue. But the story of how activists tried to push that through um, and the lengths that the slave power went to to make sure that Haiti would not be recognized, I think is very telling and revealing about American politics at that time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Absolutely. And, and from that failure you take up in Chapter 5, which takes place between uh, 18, 1838 and 1848, uh, that Black Americans and abolitionists sort of changed their strategy, right? Um, so I just want to know if you can tell us, like, what, what did the coalition uh, look to emphasize about Haiti during this time? Uh, and uh, what happened in Haiti during this time and the effect that it sort of had upon Black Americans in this coalition?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, that period is a really complicated one, because it's also the time that the abolitionist coalition is falling apart a bit in general, you know, Um, you know, there's the whole fallout that takes place between the Garrisonians and the non Garrisonians in 1840. So right about the same time that it's becoming clear that the petitioning campaign is failing in Congress. The, the bigger picture abolitionist coalition in the United States is also fracturing, right. And splintering apart. And so it is a really complicated time where black activists have to decide um, where they're going to place their emphasis, you know, how they're going to ally themselves um, in the split among the white abolitionists and what their strategy is going to be regarding Haiti given the fact that the petitioning campaign has fallen apart, right? So it's a a time of real complication and upheaval for Black activists because the abolitionist movement has fractured, you know, the petitioning campaign has bombed, right? And so they kind of have to figure out what they're going to do. Again, one of the points that I make in this chapter kind of underscores what I said at the end of chapter two, which is that even when it seems like all hope is lost, they never give up, right? And they continue to double down on the idea that Haiti could potentially be a destination for Black people to migrate, to help build up um, Haiti as an independent nation. And they also recommit themselves to the idea that the United States should recognize Haiti as a sovereign nation, even though Congress, right, is not willing um, to to sort of succumb to the the pressure. You know, one of the really complicated things that happens in the middle of that period between 1838 and 1848 is that there's a coup, right? And President Jean-Pierre Boyer, who had been the president at the time of the indemnity, is finally ousted. You know, not surprisingly, Haitians on the ground were not particularly thrilled, (laughs) right, with um, Boyer's decision to go through with the indemnity and were not thrilled with some of the economic and taxation policies that he had implemented to try to raise money to pay the indemnity, right? Um, And so there is a coup, Boyer is overthrown, and it creates kind of a whole series of instability, that follows um, for the next several years as different leaders are brought in. Some of them die of natural causes. Others of them are removed from office, right? But there's a whole series of leaders that come in that create a fair amount of instability um, in Haiti. And that, again, not only creates a challenge for Haiti, but also creates a challenge for Black activists in the U.S. who are trying to figure out how they frame, right, the political instability um, within the nation. This is, though, I think also a really important turning point relative to U.S. foreign policy, because I think this is really the period that the United States government starts pushing the image of Haiti as a failed nation, right? Like up to this point... Haiti has been kind of abused, it's been ostracized, it has not been well-treated, right? It's been kind of demonized, but Haiti was doing okay, right? Like it was going through the natural processes that a country that's just gained its independence goes through. Um, But once the indemnity comes down and the nation really starts to struggle, the United States decides it's going to kind of label Haiti as a failed nation. And once it starts to do that, the United States becomes empowered to start cooking up imperialist schemes um, relative to Haiti. And so really starting in the middle of the 1840s and I mean honestly, kind of up through the 20th century, the United States had an imperialistic vision um, towards Haiti. in the 18 late 1840s and into the 1850s, their vision was that they were going to gain a foothold somewhere on the island, either you know, on the Dominican Republic side or on the Haitian side, and then impose. US, Political control over the nation and reimpose slavery. That was the plan. And they plot, they plan, they scheme, they try it, they send, you know, military expeditions, you know, they do all of these things um, that I talk about in, um, in chapters five and six, you know, trying to sort of hatch these plans um, to impose US authority and impose slavery. And of course, that doesn't work. At that time, but it is the beginnings of what becomes this broader U.S. imperialistic stance um, towards Haiti that that then plays out, particularly in the early part of um, the 20th century.
0: Yeah,
1: and in Chapter Six, uh, you know the challenges continue. Uh, So you look at a time period that encompasses the 1850s, which is, you know, famously a tough time for uh, Black Americans. Uh, And you talk about that time held also this sort of vicious white supremacist campaign against the Haitian government. Um, So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that campaign, and uh, also how uh, Black Americans sought to, uh, and their allies sought to overcome that uh, in their fight for Haitian sovereignty.
2: Yeah, you know, the 1850s is this really fascinating time in Haiti Um in the United States, I think, as you said, we kind of know the story, right? Like it's still kind of – I don't think we have really let go of and we probably shouldn't let go of the kind of declension model, right? That like the 1850 happens, it's the Fugitive Slave Act, it's, you know, bleeding Kansas, it's the Dred Scott decision. You know what I mean? Like the 1850s are kind of a dumpster fire, right, for um, black folks in um, the United States. In Haiti, the 1850s are a really complicated um time, because what happens kind of right at the beginning of that era is that following this period of kind of political instability where different leaders are kind of coming in and out, um, following Jean-Pierre Boyer, a new leader is um, selected named Faustin Soluc. And one of the things that Faustin Soluc does is, I think, as a strategy in a couple of ways. He moves away from the political model that Haiti had been embracing for decades, which was, you know, kind of modeled on a republic, right? And he decides that Haiti is going to be an empire and that he is going to be the emperor, right? So he goes from kind of being the president um, of Haiti to being Emperor Faustin. The first, and Faustin the first, once he becomes emperor, you know he has a whole coronation ceremony, and he's very committed to the vision of himself um, as an emperor, and is very committed to regaining control over the Dominican Republic. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you know, there is a period in the 1820s where the entire island is united under um, Haitian rule. But of course, the Spanish side, what had been traditionally the sort of Spanish colonial side of the island um, breaks away from the Haitian government, declares its independence and becomes the Dominican Republic. Faustin, Faustin I is deep, and this is what I kind of explore in chapter five, is that Faustin I gets mocked and ridiculed and demonized, you know, during his reign across the Atlantic world. And it's actually a depiction of Faustin I that has persisted, right, all the way up to the contemporary time, including among historians. But one of the arguments that I make in chapter five, um, I'm sorry, in chapter six is that that's a little bit unfair. Because what people have sort of failed to appreciate, and I'm not trying to say Faustin I was, you know, a perfect leader, you know, by no stretch. And I make that very clear um, in the chapter. But what I do say is that I think we need a more nuanced understanding of the decisions that Faustin I makes. Because, What he is most concerned about, in my opinion, um, during his reign is that the Dominican Republic and then Haiti are going to fall under foreign power and control. And so he wants to bring the Dominican Republic back under Haitian control in part because he wants the Dominican Republic back under Haitian control. But I argue that it's most importantly because he is afraid that if the Dominican Republic remains independent, it will be vulnerable to invasion and control by various white Western nations, particularly the United States, right? But any of the other contenders as well, right? And so his concern then is that if that happens, then Haiti's whole back door, right, is exposed. And it makes Haiti vulnerable, right, to invasion, to imperial conquest, and to the re-imposition of slavery. And one of the things that I really try to make clear in Chapter 6 is that Faustin first is not wrong right? The United States during that entire period is plotting, planning, scheming, organizing, preparing to do precisely what Faust in the First is afraid of, right? Their plan is to gain a foothold in the Dominican Republic, use that as a launch pad, impose U.S. control, and reimpose slavery. That is precisely the plan. And Faust in the First knows it and is afraid of it. And so Faust in the First I argue, goes too far, right? He launches endless military campaigns against the Dominican Republic. And he drives, as a result, Haiti further into economic ruin. Um, he sacrifices thousands of people's lives. Um, you know, he obviously exacerbates tensions between Haiti and the Dominican. And, I mean, it has all of these deleterious effects, right? The decisions that he makes. But what I just challenge readers to do is to place the choices that he makes in their historical context. And that is to understand that Faustin was actually rightly aware, right? He was rightfully concerned that Haiti would fall back under foreign control and that slavery would be reimposed. And he was right about that. So we may not like you know, the, the volume and the extent and the intensity of his military campaigns. But I think we at least have to be fair in recognizing that he was trying to prevent Haiti from falling again under foreign control and falling back under slavery. He was a hundred percent committed to making sure that Haiti remained free and sovereign. Right. Um, so ultimately, that's really kind of what that, that chapter is about, is sort of trying to understand the the visions and the imperialistic schemes and plans that the United States had um, towards Haiti in the 1850s. And to try to look at how that drove Faustin I to extreme measures and how that caused him to kind of be demonized in the, the sort of global political world but how black activists backed Faustin the first all the way to the wall. I mean, what's really fascinating I have always kind of thought of and understood Frederick Douglass as as being a very committed abolitionist but ultimately kind of being a moderate, you know, by comparison to, you know, a David Walker or, you know, a Mariah Stewart or a, you know, Henry Highland Garnett or something, right? But in Chapter 5, you're going to (laughs) see, like, a side of Frederick Douglass you might not have known. Um, I'm sorry, in Chapter 6, you'll see a side of Frederick Douglass that you might not have known was there because he backs Saluk all the way to the wall. Um, And it's really sort of fascinating to see how
1: how that plays out. Absolutely. Um, All right, so chapter seven is absolutely fascinating. Uh, So you look at the resurgence of uh, the Haitian immigration movement during the 1850s. I knew nothing about this. And I wonder if you could, could you just take us through this movement and sort of how you found this, uh, the evidence of this movement too?
2: Yeah. So this is, this is really interesting. Actually, chapter seven, I think, is still the longest chapter in the book. But when I first turned the manuscript in, chapter seven was about twice as long as it is (laughs) in the book because I just got so fascinated with the story and with like the extraordinary volume of evidence. And they were finally like, girl, you have to cut this chapter down. Like, what are you doing? But it was just like super fascinating to me because it was like something, you know, the source material and what was happening in that chapter was just Information I was not aware of on this level. And I was able to get access to some of the Black newspapers that had been more recently digitized, like Pine and Palm and some of these, which was important because I was trying to finish this book during COVID, you know, during pre-vaccine COVID. Um, And so... um, Anyway, I got super excited about the topic of chapter seven and it got a little too long and they were like, you got to rein this in. But chapter seven is really kind of trying to look at what I kind of think of as like the resuscitation or the resurgence um, of the immigration movement. One of the points that I try to make is that obviously at the end of the 1820s, the immigration movement goes into dramatic decline, but it never disappears entirely. Like, even though it's politically unpopular, black folks are still in very, in a little trickle, right? Are still through the 1830s and forties, like migrating slowly and quietly. Um, To Haiti. But in 1850, we see, um, you know, in the late 1850s and into 1860s, we see a a massive um, kind of resurgence of the movement. Um, It's a movement that actually, at least a discussion about the movement, actually starts quite a bit earlier um, than I had previously thought. Up to this point, scholars, including myself, had, you know, taken the position that. The immigration movement doesn't really kind of fully resuscitate until after Faustin the first is overthrown, right? And Favre Geffrard becomes the president and the republic is reinstituted. But actually digging deep into the materials proves that folks actually really start talking about it even during Faustin the firsts. Um, reign as emperor. And it really starts to take off like much earlier in the 1850s, much more around like 1852, 1853. Um, you have people like James Theodore Hawley having conversations with Martin Delaney, right, and other um, pro-immigration um, activists. Um, they actually send um, Holly and a few people to kind of investigate conditions in Haiti. So they're actually talking about it Almost really from the beginning um of the 1850s. But it is true that it really takes off um, after um after the coup d'etat takes place, Favre, Favre Giffard becomes the president, and you know, he kind of abolishes the empire and reinstitutes the republic, right? He also resuscitates a lot of the um Immigration inducement programs that Jean Pierre Boyer had started in the 1820s and then terminated at the end of the decade. Geoffroy actually goes back to those inducement plans and says, look, we'll give you land, we'll give you education, we'll give you citizenship right? Basically promising to to black folks in the United States, everything they can't get in the United States, <laughs> you know? And they say like, look, if you come here, we're going to give you a fair shake and like, let's build this nation together. And so we see a whole nother wave um, of migration that again, kind of like, Ticks up at the beginning of the 1850s, really starts to take off in the mid 1850s. And interestingly enough, actually continues well past the outbreak of the Civil War, which again, you know, was another interesting thing to really fully understand. Like the traditional narrative had been like, oh, the Civil War breaks out. Everybody realizes they have to stay in the United States to fight against slavery. So that's the end. But you actually realize, like, no, like, you know, even past the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, in 1863, Black folks are still saying, we have to get out of the United States, right? And we we want to cast our lot with the Haitians. Um, so that timeline was kind of interesting to me to see that it started a lot early, the resurgence started a lot earlier and ended a lot later um, than we had actually thought. A couple of things that, you know, I hope, will be of particular interest to your readers um, were kind of some things that I found super fascinating and didn't really expect. One, and this is, I guess, more for like your listeners who enjoy gossip, but, you know, the internal debates that take place among Black activists in the 1850s around the Haitian immigration movement gets really ugly and personal. Um, and so, like I said, for those, you know, who enjoy like historical gossip, you will be, inter- you know, you'll be entertained by this chapter because, you know, Mary Shad Carey starts talking trash about supporters of Haitian immigration and, you know, no one is exempt, right, from um, the conflicts that happen. But really, you know, when you think about it, it's in the context of a situation where, you have kind of a fundamental divide within Black activists at the time, people who support immigration and people who don't. And what this chapter really exposes is that within those who support immigration, there's an additional level of splintering around the question of where should we go? right? So you have the Marianne Shad Careys of the world who are arguing in favor of Canada. You have, you know, the Martin Delaney's of the world who are advocating for West Africa. And then you have like the James Theodore Hollies who are arguing for Haiti. And the arguments get really nasty. Like, between the pro-immigrationists and the anti-immigrationists, but also among the pro-immigrationists around where the destination um, should be. And I think that's why this chapter got so long (laughs) because there was a lot to unpack there, you know, and the political conflicts did get really spicy, (laughs) right? Um, But yeah, so basically chapter seven is really kind of trying to chart that long story of what happens over, you know, starting in the, at the beginning of 1850 um, through kind of the middle of the Civil War to kind of understand how Black activists are thinking about um, immigration and specifically immigration to Haiti. And the one thing I kind of try to rectify in this chapter is For people to think differently about what they thought thought about Frederick Douglass and his position um, on the immigration question, you know, everything that I had read about Frederick Douglass and immigration up to this point had kind of fixated on this one remark that he makes that's buried in this one editorial where he says, I am not an immigrationist. But if you actually go back and read the entire piece (laughs) in its entirety, you realize that he's actually saying something very different. Like he's saying if immigration means, right, that we have to give up on, you know, abolishing slavery in the United States and we have to give up on the idea that, you know, slavery could never end in the United States and that the United States can never be a country where black people can live free and equal, then I'm not an immigrationist, right? But the reality is that he plans himself to visit Haiti Um, considers migrating there himself um, and is an ardent supporter of the Haitian immigration movement really all the way up until the outbreak of the Civil War. So that, again, Chapter 7 is one, again, that I'm hoping some of your listeners will see a little something about (laughs) Frederick Douglass that they didn't know.
1: Absolutely. Um, And so chapter eight highlights, again, this push from black Americans towards the U.S. government for formal recognition of Haiti. Uh, Can you take us through the journey of Senate Bill number 184?
2: Yeah. So this is so quickly. What's interesting about this is that this is a chapter that I had never imagined was going to be a chapter. Like before I started researching this project, my understanding was that the Confederacy secedes from the Union, the Radical Republicans decide to bring the bill forward, and it sails through Congress. So I'm like, oh, this story of how, like, Haiti finally gets recognized is going to be like a few pages, right? <laughs> That's like a quick and an easy story. Confederacy secedes, there goes the bill, right? No. Once I started actually looking at the congressional documents, I was like, oh, no, this was like, no, this I mean, what happened on the congressional floor was an embarrassing dumpster fire. And I think more than anything, profoundly reveals the imperialistic vision that white politicians and business people always had um, of Haiti because Senate Bill number 184 is the, is the bill that gets presented to Congress that packages Haiti and Liberia together, the two black republics, right, that up to that point had been unrecognized by the United States and proposes that the United States should extend formal diplomatic recognition. Of course, you know, we already understand the political and economic consequences of that relative to slavery. The other piece of it, though, is that extending diplomatic courtesies would mean that those nations then could send ambassadors to the United States. And so that that's a whole other thing, is that like even northern politicians who considered themselves to be progressive didn't necessarily want black diplomats, black ambassadors, right, rubbing shoulders with all the politicians um, in Washington, D.C., But what really happens when the bill gets introduced into Congress is that even the most radical supporters of the bill make the decision that the bill is not going to be successful on moral or even logical grounds, right? Like, they're not even going to try to argue it saying these countries have been mistreated and therefore we have to rectify a past wrong or these countries are independent, so let's just recognize them, like that to me would be the logical argument. They are pretty clear, and they're not necessarily wrong, because they get a ton of pushback, right, when the bill gets introduced. So they decide they have to switch up their strategy. And rather than arguing it on moral or logical grounds, they argue that Haiti and Liberia need to be recognized because formally recognizing them would open them up for economic opportunity for United States business. And I was really stunned. I mean, you know, obviously I study slavery. So I I read, you know, all kinds of super racist documents all the time. But I was really stunned by... The just very like naked racism that was being articulated on the floor of, you know, like in official congressional documents, but also just the the naked economic imperialism, you know, like their position is, well, if we recognize Haiti, then we can turn the country into one giant cotton field and we can send black people over there who already know how to pick cotton you know, to pick the cotton for it. You know, um, obviously that, you know, the one uh, financial representative for the United States takes the position, well, if we recognize Haiti, it will allow us to hold Haiti in the hollow of our hand, right? So the, the bill entirely gets argued on how recognizing these nations will allow the United States to carry out imperialistic schemes that will be financially beneficial to the United States. And if anyone really kind of wants to understand like what U.S. imperial policy towards Haiti eventually looks like in the 20th and the 21st century, this chapter will really help you understand, right? I mean, you'll also get it in chapters five and six because you'll see their plan to impose slavery. But once slavery is abolished... You see in even more explicit terms that even in the absence of slavery, their vision of their of the United States' relationship to Haiti is one that is to be based entirely upon economic exploitation and economic imperialism. And they spell it out for you in really explicit terms right there on the floor of Congress. So that ultimately had to become its own chapter. And it's a a really chilling one.
1: Yeah. Yes, it is. And so early in your introduction, you write that Haiti remains the most persecuted and demonized nation on the earth. Uh, What form does this demonization take today? And how does this sort of still stick? Why does this still stick with Haiti?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... Honestly, it manifests in so many different ways. Um, You know, the, the ones that feel the most obvious to me right now and I think might resonate the most with your listeners are, number one, about how Haiti is depicted and talked about in the public media. You know, for those who remember the kind of news coverage, for example, following the 2010 earthquake all we heard over and over again was haiti's the poorest country in the western hemisphere haiti is the poorest country in the western hemisphere nobody stopped to say why why is haiti the poorest country in the western hemisphere you know it's because of this very long history of the way that haiti has been treated by the white western world obviously first france right in the form of the indemnity but then later, the United States through all these forms of military, political, and economic imperialism. Right. So, part of it is that this idea that got created in the 1840s of Haiti as a failed nation. You know, this nation of people who don't know how to govern themselves, you know, and they just let the gangs run amok and, you know, they don't know how to rebuild after an earthquake, you know, um, all of these ideas that depict Haiti as this pathological failure, you um, I think is, is one of the most powerful and resonant ones, especially because it is absent of the historical context right. that would help people understand why Haiti is in the situation it is. I think another really classic example, and again, I mentioned this one because I think it resonates with what's happening politically right now, is the crisis at the border right um and the way that haitian asylum seekers are being treated um at the border right now and frankly you know i think there were some of us who were hopeful that once trump was ousted as the president you know um and you know Joe Biden became the president, that we would at least see a marginal improvement in US foreign policy towards Haiti. But of course, that's not the case. I mean, since this time last year, President Biden has been carrying out the largest mass deportation of asylum seekers in modern American history. And it is a, it is a deportation policy that overwhelmingly targets Haitians. So, you know, again, that has a history and it's a history that I talk about in the epilogue, but um, even today, the way Haitians are treated and the policies that the United States and other nations impose against Haiti, how Haiti is talked about and presented in the media, all of these, I think, are continued manifestations of how Haiti and the Haitian people are demonized um, in the
1: global public mind. Absolutely. And what sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Mm.
2: I mean, you know, I think historians, well, let me put it this way. For me as a historian, I always kind of assume that other historians are the only ones who are going to read my work. (laughs) But, you know, I, I remain hopeful, you know, I tried to write it with an eye towards the idea that people, the general public would be interested in wanting to understand more about Haiti's history, how Haiti comes to be in the situation that it is today, um, that people might actually be interested in care. So there's a part of me that is always writing in hopes of a public audience, <laughs> you know, um, that the American public in general would will want to educate um, themselves. But, you know, for whatever reason, historians, I think, get a little bit written off, you know, that we don't know how to tell what we know in interesting ways. And, you know, um, we don't like always get an opportunity to put our work in front of a more public audience. But I'm very hopeful, you know, certainly that historians, you know, and aspiring historians will read it. But I am also hoping, you know, that there is a general public out there who either cares about Haiti or who wants to learn more about Haiti um, will actually pick up this book and and try to learn something about the history of how Haiti came to be in the situation it's in.
1: And thinking of those audiences, either the general public or historians themselves, uh, what do you want readers to take away from your book? Ooh, that's a good one.
2: You know, I think two things. I think I want readers to come away with an understanding actually of what I just said, like to come away with an understanding that Haiti is not a failed nation, you know, that Haiti is not an example of a situation where you have a bunch of black people who are incapable of governing themselves. Haiti is a country of people who are, are themselves and are the descendants of People who want to be free and sovereign and have a vision of, like, a beautiful, productive, glorious life, you know, for themselves and for their people and for their nation. But that Haiti is a country that has been abused by the white Western world from the moment of its inception, Right? And that there has been now a centuries-long struggle on the part of the white Western world, including the United States, and in, most, in more recent history, most profoundly the United States, that have really sought to ensure that Haiti does not thrive, um, and yet it survives, Right? It still survives. And I think that says a lot. Like if the United States is committed to your failure and yet you still continue to survive, that says something, right? About the spirit of the people. Um, but I want people to come away with an understanding that Haiti, like I said, is not a failed nation, and it's not a nation that has found itself in the situation that it's in by accident. You know, it has found itself in that situation because there has been fear of a black republic, you know, fear of a thriving, successful black nation that wins. Um, And then I think I also want people to take away the spirit that 19th century black activists embraced, you know, the idea of like, we're going to sink or swim with our race, like, You know, I hope people take away from this like an inspiring vision of like a group of people who were as committed to the freedom of people who they would never meet, who spoke a different language, who worshipped a different God, you know, who were culturally and linguistically distinct from them. But... They were descendants of the same homeland and survivors of the same system that sought to destroy their humanity, and that for that reason, they were as committed to the freedom and the liberty and the success of those people that they would never meet than they were to their own. And there's something that's so deeply inspiring to me about that spirit that they were willing to go to the wall for people who they would never know because they believed in their freedom. And I hope people take that as an inspiring idea that we can apply to today. Like, what if we all cared as much about the freedom and the rights and the lives of people we didn't know as much as we cared about our own? Like, imagine what the world would look like. Um, so I'm hopeful that, you know, people will take that away as as an image we can emulate.
1: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Alexander, we've taken up a lot of your time. And thank you again. Uh, so I'll ask just one final question. Yeah. What are What are you working on now? Oh, so
2: now I'm actually working on a very different kind of project. But I'm working on a project that looks at the long history of policing in Black communities. Um, In this case, particularly in the United States. But I'm interested in kind of understanding how modern day practices and policies of policing have their roots um, in slavery, but have their roots in laws and policies and practices that actually stem all the way back to the colonial period.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. I'm sure everybody will look out for that. I will. I know I will myself. Thank you. Uh, and it sounds like a wonderful project as well. Uh, well, Dr. Leslie Alexander, I want to thank you for being on, to sh- on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure the listeners did as well. And take care.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.